Welcome to Main Street on Prairie Public on this day that I think should be a national holiday, actually, oh, the day the after, day the, after Super the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl. Did you have too many nachos yesterday? And friends <laughs> and, you know, visiting. And it was, of course, a little later. Um, it seems well, to get later and later every overtime, year. right? Yeah. But what a great, wonderful game. And Came down to the last few seconds. It, it really did. And, and it Taylor was, Swift's team pulled it <laughs> off. <laughs> they did indeed. Um, very much enjoyed the day, as we always do. So, And I'm sure you did as well. I did. I well, it's that was my first Super Bowl. <laughs> Wait, what? That's the first time I've ever watched the Super Bowl. I'm not gonna lie; it's because we had some friends over. Sure, and sure. I like nachos. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a wonderful reason to celebrate, and many of us would prefer to be taking an extra day, maybe to recover. But <laughs> we have a wonderful show today, Ashley, and I know you have a great interview we're going to talk about in just a moment in the first half. But in the second half of today's show, we visit with Melinda Padilla Lynch. She lives in Bowman, and she is starting a podcast that helps women new to North Dakota figure out what this state's all about. I think it's a worthwhile venture. And our first interview today is figuring out as well, but how creativity works. And do you have to be an artist and deal in abstraction, or can you work creatively in a more concrete, scientific kind of field? Our first guest today is Dr. Anna Abraham, the director of the Torrance Center for Creativity and Talent Development at the University of Georgia, where she also holds positions in psychology and neuroscience. She's lecturing at Concordia College this Thursday at 7 p.m. about the truths and myths of the creative brain. Dr. Abraham, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I wonder if a good starting point for this conversation, how does a neuroscientist think about the differences between the brain and the mind? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, They are used interchangeably often, even by scientists. Hmm. But the way we would distinguish it is the brain is the actual organ, the physical thing within our skulls whereas so it's the physical whereas the mind when we refer to it is is really the mental what we think um largely emanates from the brain but involves you know our interactions with the world around us involves our larger physiology beyond the brain and so on so we use it interchangeably because it's easy to do so I would say. <laughs> um but it's very clear that we are talking about very different things there so when it comes to studying the neuroscience of creativity, do you find that the studies um, are, are more heavily on the brain end because it's obviously easier to measure? Or, or how do you measure things that are happening in the mind? Yeah, so the it's a great question. And it's one that is fraught, I think, because mm. we can only study the mind um, indirectly by looking at people's behavior. And so we can infer what they might be thinking, feeling, uh, why they are doing the things that they do. (laughs) And the other way we can infer this is through the brain. So usually Mm. you might look at brain activity patterns Mm. or you might um, infer based on the size of a particular region or how well connected it is to another region. So these are all indirect metrics to try and find out a little more about the mind. The mind itself is it's just not there's no way that we can directly look at it and so we have um we use methods whether they're behavioral or physiological in nature um as carefully as possible um 
to derive as sound conclusions as we can. Hmm. So when you are looking for the hallmarks of a creative brain, a creative mindset, what are you looking for? And let's maybe even start that question with including an accepted definition of what creativity is. Yes. So the definition itself is, again, something that's up for grabs. I mean, it's something that people have thought about very for a very long time. And there are many um, reasons to kind of think about what's lacking from the definitions that we use. In the way that I use it currently, and this is pretty current, is the way I see it is um, something is creative in the extent that it is novel and satisfying. Um, and we can look at it in terms of whether it is you've created an idea, you've come up with an idea that is both new and you find is makes sense, feels good, feels right um, to you. And if it also then resonates with a wider collective as others. So you could create something that you quite enjoy and you find very creative, but it's not necessarily the case that I will find that to be creative as well. So, <laughs> right. So um, the problem in, in studying the creative mind is that we have largely looked at the creative mind, not wholly, but largely looked at the creative brain in terms of this external frame of reference. You do something and then I look at it and think, hmm, is that creative or not? Yeah. And based on that, I might say, oh, let me look at her brain activity patterns while she's doing this task. Um, so we've missed out a lot of what's the internal frame of reference, what, what, what you are going through. So you mm. could be actually being quite creative and I'm not really aware of it because I'm using a different yardstick. Um, but that's how we, we, we would define it. And some people would call it novel and effective novel and valuable, novel and appropriate. But I think the word satisfying sort of captures all of that because mm. we know when we've come up with something that makes sense to us, that feels right to us, that, that <laughs> hits what we wanted to hit, you know. So do you end up looking a lot at sort of creative people's different processes? And I'm wondering, you know, if you go into a study and you want to know the absorption rate of a pharmaceutical on an empty stomach, you can tell someone you cannot eat for six hours. If you came up to me and said, hey, girl, be creative, I would, well, I'd probably freeze in there by showcasing I'm not that creative. Um, but, you know, some people might need to be creative after a workout. For some people, it's meditation. For some people, it's making tea. Uh, so mm -hmm. how can you even set up a study when the creative process can differ so greatly? I mean, you're absolutely right. Studies can be quite flawed. You can't prompt creativity in a manner that's reliable or even valid, right? So one of the approaches, you can still try, and a lot of people do, as, as have I. That's one way is to say, okay, let me at least try to make, push a person to be creative. And I see the responses they come up with. I evaluate them based on what I think is creative and not. Um, mm. And then I look at what happened in their brain then. But another way to do it is to do it kind of obliquely, which is another approach that I've taken and many others have where you get people to do a variety of different tasks. And some of the tasks are more generative and others are less so. They're more sort of a recollective. And by looking at their brain activity patterns, for instance, when they're doing this generative, um, imaginative activity compared to something that doesn't require it, you can get a step closer to understanding the creative brain. So it's not it's not running at it directly. It's mm -hmm. um, getting to it obliquely, so mm. to speak. What parts of the brain tend to be most active? And is there a big difference between the male brain and the female brain in your studies? Oh, in terms of creativity? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's the, the thing about creativity that we know from a couple of decades now of neuroscientific research is that there is no single brain region, no single brain network or single brain activity pattern, so to speak, that is exclusively in place for, creati for creativity. What 
is the case is that we use our minds that have developed for, you know, to receive the world and predict what's going to happen next. The sort of receptive, perceptive, predictive loop that the brain is constantly engaged in. And we use it for a completely different end when we're trying to be creative. We're using it to generate and explore ideas. Mm. And so we're using the mechanics that we have in a very open-ended context. So there's no uh, one brain region or brain network. We use all of our. If if anything, what we're trying, what we see is that we use our minds in very dynamic ways, depending on the context, depending on the task, depending on, like you said, what your mood is like, but you're feeling blocked, whether um, you know where you are in in the work that you're kind of doing, and so on. Um, so there is no easy answer to that because it really depends on what you're trying to do. So you're trying to do something that's more literary in nature, something that's more imagery based and so on and mm. so forth. And so you can come to specific, a clearer idea of the specifics once you zone in on the specifics of, of creativity, very much like in the case of memory, when you focus on explicit versus implicit memory. But sure. um, yeah, when it comes to gender differences, there are none, there are none that we can really show in terms of, um, brain activity patterns. Um, so there's very little work on it. And some of my own work has shown that there's no mm. real behavioral difference in, among adults. Um, you know, it's not like uh, women are better than men or men are better than women and so on. Um, but um, the, bra the brain activity patterns look different. So they're using their networks differently. And there's, there's a very small study. Um, we'll have to see whether it bears out. But we're just starting to get into the idea of, well, the way, I mean, you're trying to come up with a creative idea and I'm trying to come up with a creative idea. We could get the same task, but we're going to approach it quite differently, right? Because mm -hmm. of our backgrounds and our histories and our, our unique abilities and so on and so forth. And so our brain activity patterns will look very different uh, depending on the kind of strategies that you are using to come up with a poem about uh, a well <laughs> and that <laughs> I might use, for instance, right? So, mm. so we would see a lot of variances and we're not really anywhere close to understanding how these strategies bear out in terms of um, differences at the level of neural activity patterns. I mean, it sounds like you're trying to take a cloud and turn it into a solid object. <laughs> yes, that's a good description, exactly it. Mm -hmm. We're visiting today with Dr. Anna Abraham. She will be delivering a lecture at Concordia College on February 15th at 7 p.m. on the truths and myths of the creative brain. She is the author of The Neuroscience of Creativity. Have you seen a difference, Dr. Abraham, in creative brain and are there ways to strengthen it with creative pursuits if i take a poem writing class will it make me more creative even if it's outside the field of poetry oh that's a good question um there's very little work that looks at that so how you're training in one domain improves your capacity in another domain there's some limited work to show that in the case of music that that kind of works but again i'm talking like one study that has shown that and mm -hmm. so very few people have looked at that certainly when you are undertaking any kind of training you see differences and um, improvements both behaviorally as well as in terms of uh, brain structure and function things change over time so that's been shown mm. as well in artistic domains as well um, but very few people have ever looked at whether it transfers to another domain mm. uh, you, you just said brain structure and function and how those change are you talking just sort of normal aging or, or what do you mean mm. by that well I mean I'm thinking of one study um, I think it was led by Alexander Schlegel and he this was a couple of years ago and he compared a group of students who went through um, 
um, a sort of a, a semester long sort of drawing course mm. compared to those who didn't and looked at, you know, their behavioral, uh, lots of behavior metrics. What did they, you know, what was their creativity levels like before they started? What were their brain metrics like when they were doing particular tasks? What was the structural, um, what were their brain structures like before they did these tasks? And then they followed them up three months, I think, later when after they'd gone through weeks and weeks and weeks of training and they showed specific uh, differences. So brain in terms of brain structure, um, they showed, I think, um, white matter differences in certain parts of the brain, so, such as the frontal lobe. So even with just three months of training, there were structural differences to be seen, not, wow. not just, you know, and yeah. of course that was uh, accompanied by uh, behavioral differences in terms of obviously the drawings got better. Um, also their creativity in, in non-domain related, non-drawing related tasks seemed to have improved as well in terms of practical problem solving and so on. So um, there are studies that show that. Um, and you would expect that. Anything that you train, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of plasticity in the brain, even at the level of adulthood. We can, you know, you can always, you can tomorrow learn to do a new task. Mm -hmm. And it's because, you know, you have neuroplasticity and you can learn new things and, you, and your brain will change accordingly, you know, mm -hmm. in small um, but very clear ways. With the lecture that you are delivering at Concordia, a small liberal arts four-year college, be different at a tech school, for example? Oh, gosh. Um, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Well, I mean, I might make it... Um... For a four, I mean, I, I haven't... I don't really tailor it like that unless it's asked for. So mm -hmm. sometimes I get people saying, we're in a tech school, I, we want you to talk about AI then and then mm. I'll get that in but it may not be something that's super interesting for someone for students in an art school so I wouldn't bombard them with things that they may not be interested <laughs> in but I would I'm very receptive to it well people say oh we've, we're wondering about this could you talk about this and then I would add it on for sure well, you brought up AI, and there are there's so many threads a person could pull with AI. But two of the the big camps are, you know, AI is going to take away our ability to to think and, and to be creative. And then the other people saying AI is just another tool. I can use it to automate more tasks and then save space for creativity. Um, is this a is this a both and? Is it creative people will use it creatively, and and non creative people won't? Gosh, uh, it's a big question. And I think there's truth to both things. I'm actually more of a skeptic about these things, but mm. it is just a technology, but it's a very different kind of technology compared yeah. to anything that we've seen before. And it's going to radically alter and is already radically altering our world. Um, it's, and I think people like us adults in the world will be f maybe find it a little bit hard to understand or even think about the effects it's going to have on younger people who come in with this technology, right? Because, sure. you know, um, when I went to school, I mean, we had just blackboards. We didn't have computers. Right. We were writing by hand. Um, when I went to university, it was the same thing. And so we've used the, all of the hardwired skills that, require, that are required when you came to, you know, attending to potentially really boring lectures and <laughs> taking notes and all of that. Those skills are very different from, you know, because I had to, there was no nothing else there, um, as did all of my peers. Um, and now it's sort of, uh, you know, you, you, we're teaching in very different ways. We have a lot of um, multimedia at our fingertips. We have to be entertainers in class a lot. You can't just sit and, you know, lecture on end like the kind but but you know I think the thing is we can make things more stimulating but um and so, some in some ways we can I think uh, push interest mm. um but in other ways we can take away pretty uh important capacities that are required 
um, to be able to persevere at very hard tasks. And so when what my fear for AI is, is that by automating a lot, we will stop doing those things that we our brains were basically trained up to do. Mm. And then the hard part, the hard part is the creative part, which is coming up with a new idea is not easy. You know, doing creative things takes um, effort and energy and um why would you, you know, and if you've not trained up those muscles to really, let's say, persevere, persist, mm. keep trying, getting things wrong, f- figuring out your unique way of looking at the world, try and articulate something in a way that expresses what you are really feeling or thinking about. Sure. If you don't do that and don't spend years trying to perfect that, um, I, I don't see how you're going to write that book or write that poetry in a way that um, is, rep, you know, that captures something about the human condition that no one has before. So my fear for AI is that it will de-skill us in very fundamental ways um, in expressing ourselves. And people who are adults now, we don't, I don't think we have much to fear there because it's hardwired in us. That's how we, you know, mm-hmm. that's how we were brought up. Whereas if you you start very young and you've never had to construct your own sentences, <laughs> then, sure. I, I, you know, um, I think it's the, the de-skilling that is the problem. And so I think there, there are there are um, ways in which to safeguard against that and to think about when to introduce such techniques, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so on. But it, it's like saying if you've never learned to sew, do you know how to make your own clothes? You don't, of course, right? Mm-hmm. But right. there was you a have time to learn where... You straight stitch first. Exactly. Okay. So, um, but yeah, if you didn't... So, so those are the things where I think there is, I think, a real worry uh, with regard to creative people. I know that some people are embracing it and other people are shunning it. Um, and both have their reasons, I imagine, good reasons um, for doing so. I'm not really that bothered about pe- people who are sort of very... It's a personal choice for people who are very established uh, creative artists. Mm. Um, I worry more about, um, you know, the the, the new up, up and coming artists who now there'll be less a need to commission local artists to make the the okay. the you know the little artworks in in the libraries and schools or in public playgrounds or whatever it is. Um, you can just get an AI to do that for much cheaper. So the the fact the cost effectiveness of it will mean that. Um, you know, people who are less eminent uh, will struggle more. And they've always been a struggling profession in terms of the, you know, sheer precariousness of being in artistic professions. And I think that's going to increase and that's not a, not a good thing. So I worry for um, people early on in the profession, the starting off in the professional sphere there um, and what this might um, mean um, for, the capa- for the capability of supporting themselves. We're visiting today with Dr. Anna Abraham, the director of the Torrance Center for Creativity and Talent Development at the University of Georgia. She's coming to Concordia College this coming Thursday to deliver a keynote address at 7 p.m. called The Truths and Myths of the Creative Brain. Dr. Abraham, another thing that can be very difficult to study is emotions. Yes. Uh, And yet emotions can have a profound impact on someone's creativity. Um, Absolutely. How many times have people been really, really angry and then somehow that prompted them to finally get to the meat of what they're trying to say? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, what are you seeing there? Oh, gosh, I don't see much there, to be honest. Hmm. I think the I mean, I think it's really, really important, but it's one of the more neglected areas of oh. um, of. A creativity. I mean, the the people who speak the most about. It, I think the the kind of emotionality that you're talking about is drive, mm. and the person who's spoken very eloquently about that for many years has been um, Alice Flaherty, 
who I think is at Harvard, and she's a, um, a physician there. Um, and she talks about how, you know, um, at, at a sort of neurochemical level, uh, what drives creativity and how different emotions can be used to channel creativity. Um, but that's not really been followed up as much in, in empirical work. So mm. that's, and I think partly it's because it's very hard to study. Um, so the emotional side of things, I think in, in empirical work on creativity from psychology and neuroscience, the kind of work that I do, um, we've neglected the emotional side of things um, mm. quite a bit um, because we focused on the more, you know, as uh, on the more, let's say, the cerebral side of uh, thinking, cre creative thinking, you know, mm. as opposed to the, the fee and the feeling component gets um, um, really all but ignored. And so it's, and, and that's because a lot of creativity research uh, when it comes to how it was started, it's, it grew as an offshoot of intelligence research. And so it, its roots are in the thought, the cognitive, the thought aspect of it in terms of problem solving and so on. Um, and I think there's now an emergence of um, the consideration of emotions and creativity to be to, to take it more center stage. Mm -hmm. So there was a recent handbook that looks at that. I think we're just starting to explore that in great in great depth, and that's only because we have chosen to focus on the thinking and not the emotions. And mm -hmm. there's very few people who do that in tandem, you know. Yeah. Um, and this is true of all of psychology. So you might look at people who are looking at you know emotion emotions researchers in psychology, and they're not necessarily tying it in with. Um, much of what happens in the cognitive sphere for many people these are still studied quite separately and but now it's it's still a growing body now that you see people are sort of uh, let's say all of these classical divisions between perception action emotion cognition um, more and more of us are treating them as more fluid yeah and so the <laughs> the, the the future will see a lot of this um, uh, less sort of um, separation among these obviously intricately related aspects of our human psychology is that a natural consequence of more women being involved in science? We're, <laughs> we're a bit more known for thinking holistically. Gosh, that's a great question. I have no idea. Certainly more more women are coming into science. More women are coming into creativity research as well. It, it could be a result of that. I have no way of knowing. Um, or, or, it <laughs> sure. could be, or it could be a result of some things just take just take a t some time to get to to get mm. recognized as a need, and sometimes it happens all at once, right? Some an idea becomes it, idea gets it, it's a, it's a time for a particular idea, and um, then it takes root. And I think for emotions, it's been seen the way it's been studied has been for a long time really rooted in basic emotionality like fear and mm. sadness mm -hmm. and happiness. So the sorts of emotions that we would be thinking about in the creative context, um, aesthetic emotions, such as interest and awe and wonder, these have been, of course, been explored in, in the context of aesthetics, but less so in the context of the creation of those aesthetic elements. And so slowly it's it's coming full circle, I think. Um, so it's these things have been studied, but not in the context of creative ideation. But it will be, I for one, I'm getting into that sphere as a, as a several others. Do you have tips for students or employees to advocate for how to have their creative needs met in either a classroom or a work setting? Sure. Um, well, a lot of that, a lot of excellent work actually comes from the workplace in terms of what are the conditions that you need in order to be creative. And so uh, one is essentially just the opportunity to explore and to express yourself. That's That's one thing. A lot of 
curriculum, a lot of um, classrooms are not, are not really set up for that. And of mm -hmm. course, it can't be in every single classroom, but there's, there's great examinations in the literature of, you know, different curricula across colleges and what kinds of courses allow for uh, a more creative engagement in their courses and what don't. Um, so any courses that um, ask for a more self-reflection, um, get you to have some autonomy in what you choose as a topic to write on, for instance, uh, maybe not complete autonomy, but some choice, um, something that allows you to learn over the, like get good at something. So mm -hmm. mastery is another fa factor. Um, but also like what I do in my classes is to really just push for self-reflection and I mean, not just about oneself, but about everything one is reading, you know, um, mm -hmm. and to to get it to be written. And so it doesn't have to be super formal um, because getting it on, you know, getting it out there is what causes you to think deeper. And um, I think it was I think who was it? The poet um, Cecil Day Lewis, who said, you know, thinking is writing is thinking or something along those lines <laughs> like it to to write down something um, helps you think. And so really giving them the chance to a lot of courses are just focused on multiple choice assessments and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So it's just, do you know this or not? And um, if you move to the kind of classrooms and assessments that say, what do you think about this? Why do you think this way um, beyond navel gazing, let's say? Um, <laughs> so that's important to sort of and also to cultivate your unique voice. You know, when you mm -hmm. are thinking, you are thinking about why am I thinking this? So why does it interest me? And so there's, there's a lot there. I don't know how much control students have over over the assessments that they have. But if they look at syllabi, they can look up different courses that they plan to take. They can make informed choices there. Dr. Anna Abraham, the author of The Neuroscience of Creativity, speaking this Thursday about the truths and myths of the creative brain at Concordia College at 7 p.m. You can find out more at anna-abraham.com. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. An interesting side note to our listeners, one of Dr. Abraham's research areas is mental mind travel, and you can check out more on that website. Still to come on Main Street a podcast for connection. That's coming up after this. Support for Prairie Public is provided by Jade Presents, bringing Fargo Comedy Fest to the Fargo Theater Friday, February 16th and Saturday, February 17th. Headliners are Maria Bamford on Friday and Drew Lynch on Saturday. Details at jadepresents.com. Welcome back to Main Street on Prairie Public. Pleased to be joined by Melinda Padilla Lynch. She's launching a podcast, Women in North Dakota. Melinda, welcome to Main Street. Thank you. It's an honor. Melinda, you have not been in North Dakota your whole life, but you've been here for a while. Tell me how you got here. Sure. So we moved here at the height of oil. Uh, we live in Bowman, North Dakota, the southwest corner. In 2008, I'm originally from Kansas City, that 2008-2009 economic downfall of the whole rest of the world. North Dakota had no clue what was going on. My husband worked for a construction company since same one since he was 16. They did half million dollar homes and up. And so when that economy crashed, we knew we needed to do something different. And I will tell you, this ages me. We got onto Craigslist and started looking for jobs. That's so you could probably put the math together. We decided to look for jobs for whatever reason. I, we didn't know anything about the oil boom here. We really were clueless. We were just surviving whatever we could do. There was a construction company that was looking for 
carpenters and help. And my husband grew up in a small town in Southern Missouri before he moved to Kansas City and decided, let's take a chance. We had no kids at the time. I thought it would be just like an adventure. We stay, live out, you know, in my mind, North Dakota was going to look like Yellowstone, like these beautiful rolling hills, like we were going to see buffalo everywhere. I had these, you know, I had these preconceived ideas. Really, it was to come for the American dream. We wanted to really just come up and have a great job, have security, just like everybody else and put some money away. And if it worked out, buy a house. In the Kansas City market at that time, you know, things were just crashing. People were getting evicted from their homes, foreclosing. And it was just a totally different world than it was up here. So that is actually how we actually fell upon North Dakota. We moved here on Christmas Eve at 1.30 in the afternoon. They told us to hurry up and get to the grocery store at 2 o'clock because it was closing. <laughs> and that was such a weird concept to me. I was like, they closed at 2 o'clock on Christmas Eve. We were fortunate enough when we first moved to North Dakota in our small town. At that time, there was 1,900 people. There was only three houses for sale. There was no rentals. Oil filled was all down in this area. And it was just a complete culture shock. The great thing was that my husband's company that... Um, was looking for people, they were able to provide us housing. So we were in a one bedroom, tiny basement apartment, which was almost like a studio. And it was $450 a month, all inclusive. So we had our internet, our washer and dryer, everything paid for. So we really were kind of in a culture shock coming from a really big metropolitan city to this tiny little basement apartment. And they're like, here you go. We'll see you at work on Monday. So it was definitely an adventure. I would say that when you move to North Dakota, it's always an adventure. Here's your new life. When you look back on your first days, mm. how did you feel? I was terrified. You know, when I moved to like Denver or I moved somewhere else, I knew at least a few people. I knew no one here. I was wondering how I was going to fit in. I had done my research on the state, done my research on the town after we got this job offer. And I knew that I was going to be a minority in race. I knew that we were moving to a really rural community and I've never lived in a really small town like that. So I was nervous, but I was excited to see kind of the adventure before us. I found my first year here was very interesting. I asked a lot of questions. Like I had never seen like an actual farm or rodeo or <laughs> ranch. Um, so I had a few people who took me under their wings and they took me to rodeos. I had a lot of questions about that. One of my friends has a big cattle ranch at the time. And um, I was just shocked. I felt, I was like, this is real. Like there's real, can I pet the cows? Or like, I wouldn't recommend it. But you know, for me, I just was so inner city that I had no clue. You know, us inner city kids, when we were in school, they would bus us out to petting zoos and farms for us to see that stuff. So I think the context of going from very much an inner city mindset to a metropolitan city, to a very rural ag-based remote community, not just rural, we're talking remote, because if you don't know North Dakota, I have to drive 76 miles to my nearest Walmart. And that was a culture shock for me too. And so I had stayed in town for the first six weeks because we moved here during winter. I was like, I got to get out of here. I got to go see what else is going on. And so for me, that was the big city. You know, I went to, I went to Dickinson for my groceries that weekend. And I was like, oh, traffic. Oh, this is awesome. Because we have no stoplights in our town. Literally, if you say you're late, you'll be there within five minutes. So it was just a very different shift for me. But I was very grateful that I had some people take me under their wings and kind of teach me the new things. And my husband's employer was super helpful to us about getting us acclimated and really helping us understand the culture. And we asked a lot of questions like, do you guys have this? Where is this at? Where do I get this done? I can't imagine someone moving up here that didn't have that context of an employer that was willing to be helpful. We're going to talk about your new podcast, Women in North Dakota, in just a minute. But Melinda, you've also now, you shared your resume, your history, I guess, with me. You've completed the North Dakota Women's Business Center's Women in Leadership Program in 2021. 
the Cohort 5 Change Network, the DEI program, the University of Mary's Leadership North Dakota Executive Program. What caused you to want to immerse yourself, I guess, in North Dakota in the way that you have? So if we look at my timeline, we moved here in 2011. So I didn't really start coming out of my shell for about eight, nine years. It took me a long time to navigate who I was, where did I fit in. When I first moved here, I was trying to fit in so hard that I became someone I wasn't. And then I had to take a really hardcore step back and really evaluate that. And plus I was in my thirties, you know, still growing as a person. I really had to take a step back and realize what did I want? And I really want growth. And one of the things that I also noticed that in North Dakota is people really value a higher education degree when you look at networking, jobs, and I knew I didn't have that. I did not have a degree, but I knew that I had the capability of still learning. I wanted to get to know other women who wanted to grow. I wanted to broaden my network. When I went to North Dakota Women's Business Center's Women's Leadership Program, I actually had uh, the imposter syndrome. I told my leader after we left there, I said, I'm in the wrong spot. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm a girl from the hood who lives in a really small town and I'm in this room with the, all these executives. And she's like, Melinda, you're in the right place. Your voice needs to be heard. And that was something that kind of clicked with me. And that really excelled my desire to grow and really understand networking in North Dakota. So when the Change Network came open, I had a really great champion, Megan Langley from Strength and ND, shout out to them. But they, she really got behind me and said, Melinda, you'd be a really great fit for this program. And then I had been eyeing the North Dakota You Marry Leadership Workforce uh, Development Program. And I was like, it's an executive program. I was an administrative assistant for the police department at that time. And I'm like, I'm going to go for it. I'm just going to put my name out there and I'm going to go for it. And I had to go through the whole process like everybody else, you know, interviewing and I got in and I was so honored to be in, but that really opened some massive networks for me. But also at the same time, it helped me find my voice and my place. I was able to speak up that not everyone is North Dakota leadership is either one color or from one education background or one economic background. I wanted to remind them that there was tons of people out there like me who wanted to be in leadership. Enjoying our conversation with Melinda Padilla Lynch. She's starting a new podcast launching in March, March 1st, Women in North Dakota. So Melinda, you've improved yourself. You've gotten some more education, but there had to have been a moment mm. or some experience that sparked this idea for podcasting to be a focus for you and on women in North Dakota. How did that work, especially from a transplant like yourself? I'm very outgoing. I, I love meeting new people. But one of the things that I noticed that I have a tendency to notice gaps in things. And so when I worked for the law enforcement agency in, Nor in Bowman, I noticed that there was no training for support staff. And I'm like, do people realize we deal with the exact same people that our officers deal with? And living in a rural community and dealing with the worst in your community takes a toll on you. And then having to go out into public and loving on your community and going to church with the same people that you just arrested. So I realized, is there training? Is there anything out there? So one of the things I went to my chief, Charles Headley, he's a phenomenal person. He's, I said, is there, I have this idea. I want to start this network, this training network. And he goes, willing to take it as far as you can go. This is a great idea. And so having that support from him really helped kick that off. But during that time that I developed this nonprofit, and now we have five states that come because there is nothing else for them to, I realized two things. I realized having these conversations with most of the people who serve in law enforcement support roles, like as your admin assistants, records, they're all women, not all, but traditionally, I want to make sure I say that. I realized a lot of them were transplants and they're working in the hardest roles in communities in law enforcement. And then I started realizing, wait, 
a lot of these people have similar stories as I do and they were lost and there's no resources for, especially for people moving here, but like women who are moving here. So long story short, when I got the job with the state with community development, I realized that this is a massive need and a massive want. We're in commerce. They always talk about workforce, workforce. Let's get people to move here. How do we get people to take these jobs? How do we get people to get acclimated in communities? And I realized that there was two things. We're not really asking the people who've already moved here. What made them move here? What made you decide to stay. And if you don't want to stay, how can a community keep you to stay? And then I also realized that when I was working in law enforcement, working with the hardest people, the people on their worst days, how did someone have that tenacity to stay in that community and keep moving forward and loving their community and stay active? So I started putting those thoughts together. And then I realized that I had a unique voice. I had a unique voice as a brown woman from a big city moving to a rural community that really ended up falling in love with North Dakota slowly, but she eventually did. And I'm like, there's got to be other women out there. And then I started looking at stats, that if you look at stats, women are really the catalyst that keeps a family into a community. If a woman doesn't like a community, usually they'll move. And so there was a big pivotal point for me in 2015, that summer, oil crashed, like literally overnight oil crashed. And then all of a sudden, within a month, families were moving out like droves. People left their animals behind, furniture behind. They were going back to where they were. So I think what North Dakota fails to realize is that there was a pivotal, beautiful point that when the economy crashed across the United States, oil boomed. It was a perfect storm for all these people wanting to move to North Dakota because of, of that job security. But now the rest of the economy across the United States is, is comfortable. It's safe. So why would someone who's grown up in Mississippi their whole life, who's comfortable, has their family there, move to North Dakota? So now we're asking a different question. How do we get people to move here who've never been here? How do we get people to stay here and love their communities? And it takes a while for that. And I think looking at the long haul of that is really what helped me develop this podcast. So you must have goals for your podcast. You're I going do. To, sure. You want to launch it. You want folks to listen to it. I live on the eastern side of the state yeah our family probably had a different experience than your family exactly. living in more rural north dakota what's the balance there and what do you hope to project to women all across the state of north dakota great question craig it's interesting to me i've done quite a few interviews already i'm working on editing i'm dropping march 1st one of the things that's interesting to me is that the women who move to rural communities or have a harder time adjusting than the women who move to bigger cities the women who move to bismarck williston they end up loving it they are like i can't imagine moving anywhere else but the women who move to rural communities struggle and they struggle for a really long time or they're still struggling and so that is really where i want to take this data and take these stories and really take it to the next level i'm hoping community leaders are listening i'm hoping that they ask those really hard questions. I eventually want to help rural communities develop welcoming community programs. I want to eventually develop a consulting form where I'm like almost a secret shopper and I come stay in your town as a brown woman and stay. And I want to ask like your gas station workers, your hotel workers, do you like your town? What is it that you don't like? Is there signage? How did I navigate? Was I welcomed? Was there somewhere to eat? Someone who's lived here their whole life, they don't see their community the same way as someone who's visiting it. And then as a woman traveling by myself, do I feel safe in your community? And so eventually that is the ultimate goal with it is I do want to create that welcoming communities. And I want to help, especially rural communities, really change that verbiage and that how they ask those questions. So I always say, this is what I tell people in my daytime job. When you go up to someone who's brand new and say, hey, I have never met you. Welcome to my new town. Welcome to town. There was a different way you could say that. Hey, I haven't had a chance to meet you. What drew you to here? Because we have a tendency in North Dakota to be like, why? 
why did you move to North Dakota? So you're making that person who moved here feel like they're crazy and they're looking at you like you're crazy because like, why did you, why are you staying here if you hate it so much? But I think there's a different way. You can ask exact same question in a different context. And I want to help communities learn that because I've had people come up to me in different ways, sometimes very aggressive of like, I don't know you. Why are you here? Initially, that's going to put me on defense. It's going to put you on defense. And you're looking at me like something's wrong. Not everybody from big cities are looking to run away from something. We're all running towards something. And North Dakota is the land of opportunity. And I don't think people realize what North Dakota really offers because it's such a secret gem of like beauty and opportunities. You can reinvent yourself here in a way that you've never been able to in your past states because of how North Dakota really welcomes transplants with new ideas with small businesses. And that is one of the things we could talk about later, but that is something I've seen that North Dakota has the opportunity to do. How do you plan to recruit guests for your podcast, Melinda? Are you hoping to visit with people that were in your shoes that maybe struggled a little bit at first, or maybe even are struggling now in their new life here in the state? Are you going to just provide advice to folks? What's the format of what you envision for this podcast? First off, I have a network, a virtual network for women. This just started February 1st. It's a small group of women who are new to North Dakota, who've lived here either for 20 years or for two years. And we talk about the winner. We talk about resources. How do you network? How do you navigate? But we talk about that really in depth on my podcast. So the way that I've recruited is I've started with my circle. They always start with, say, people you know. And I know a lot of transplants. I have a tendency to kind of flock to them. We kind of draw or drawn to each other in groups or like, hey, you're not from here, are you? You're like, no, I'm not either. I don't know what it is. We could smell each other out. And so I've gathered a lot of great resources and a, a big network now with between my job, between my continuing education. My network has gotten pretty big. And so for them, I want to hear their story. I want women to have a platform to really showcase their story because I don't feel like anyone's asking that. But the other question is, there's a lot of women who've moved to North Dakota who are doing amazing, great things that North Dakota would never be the same if they had never moved here. I think about my friend Jasmine who moved here from Zimbabwe and how she has really helped with Global Neighbors. I think about my friend Jenna Claussen with the Highway Patrol and how she helped start the Culture Liaison Program. These are people who, if they would have not moved here, maybe those things may have not have grown or been here. Those are the stories you want to hear. I also want to hear about the stories of people who've moved here who are struggling. And I don't want to sugarcoat over those things. I really want to help them navigate that. And okay, if you are struggling, what can a community do to get you to stay here? What is it that you're looking for that you're lacking, you're not getting? And so those are what we talk about on my podcast. I send my guests an outline of questions and we just walk through it, but really it's giving them a voice, giving them a voice so others can hear. Melinda, if you were to tell me based on your discussions with those in your network, the challenges that are most important to women that they're facing now or that they faced when they moved here. And childcare comes to my mind. It's disproportionately, I think, the responsibility of childcare falls on women and affects women. Is that one of the biggest challenges or are there other challenges that we just don't think about? It's a great question. And I feel like that's such a, it's a massive question. You know, I I face that in my everyday job. When I travel with my, with the state, I face it every day. I mean, I run a nonprofit. I'm emceeing, leading a conference and my kids had to come with me because I had no one to watch my kids and I had to pull them from school and they had to do hotel schooling that week because we're alone up here. We're alone and I don't have anyone. And my husband, we own a construction company and we're at our busiest time. This is very real. But also at the same time, I think there's an opportunity for North Dakota to really lean in. We are number four in broadband. I wish that more rural communities would look at offering hybrid or remote positions in their communities. This would really help the workforce, I think. The other thing too is with childcare, I think they need to get creative. 
there's so many cool things that a rural community could do compared to a major metropolitan can do and really working together, really utilizing that. And I, I really, it's hard for me to tackle that because that's a hard one. But I think one of the things people don't realize women move here is asking the right questions of like, where do you find childcare? Who do you trust? When you ask someone a question, of like, who do you trust for childcare? You're going to hear the whole backstory of that person from third grade and they stole my bike in third grade and I don't, no. Okay. Who are they today? You know, uh, North Dakotans have a long memory. I will say that. (laughs) that. I'm like, wow, you guys remember everything, don't you? Thank God you didn't know me in second grade. Let me ask you this as we kind of move forward. If you were to tell me since you've moved to North Dakota, what your absolute favorite discovery has been, Let's go real positive here. What didn't you know that just absolutely surprised you and impacted your life? I would say, Craig, the biggest thing is I did not realize how diverse the landscape in North Dakota was. Like when I first got here, I thought it was just going to be like Kansas all flat. And then I didn't realize that we have Medora, Pima Gorge. We have these, you know, Botno. We have these beautiful places, Lake Mitagoshi area. We have these beautiful, beautiful areas that really surprised me. I'm very fortunate that I get to travel across the state for my job. And then also that the American dream is still alive in North Dakota. How many places can you make a decent living, buy a home and still let your kids, you know, ride their bike down the street? That is the beautiful thing here. Those are the the little hidden secrets that I did not realize was here. If you could reduce all that you've learned to give a one piece of advice mm. for a woman who's considering moving to North Dakota right now, what would you tell them? I would remind them to take one more step. One more step. It is such a brave challenge to move to a place that you've never been to, that you've never lived. But take one more step and ask the right question. I will share this one piece of advice that someone gave me, and it's one of the best things that's ever done for me. When you meet someone and you share with them your life and you tell them your interests and what you're doing, ask them, who should I know? Who should I know? And that has opened so many doors when I share like how I'm passionate about certain things. And I'm like, who should I know? They're like, oh, you should know so-and-so. They really like this. Or so-and-so, you and them would really click. Asking that one more question and taking that one more leap of faith has opened so many more doors for me than anything else. And so I, I encourage women who are either new here or thinking about moving here that you are brave. And I'm really happy you're here. But I want you to take one more step and get out of your comfort zone and realize that you've already done the big step and that you have one more step to do to help broaden that network. And Melinda, my final question for you, if you could offer one message to the policymakers in North Hmm. Dakota, to leaders, to people that have been here a while about the value and impact of welcoming transplants, particularly women into their communities, what would you tell them? I would remind them that not all people who are looking to relocate to North Dakota really have a really comprehensive understanding of what community or of experienced community. And so remembering that inclusivity looks different from someone maybe who's growing up in a small town or rural community, but most people who are moving here are growing up in a very different mindset or different atmosphere. So I would challenge them to ask. We are all, every state thinks they're nice. Every state thinks they're nice, but are we being inclusive and welcoming? Linda has been in North Dakota since 2011, and she's launching this new podcast, Women in North Dakota. Best wishes to you and to the podcast, Linda, and thank you so much for joining us today on Main Street. Thank you, Craig. Support for Pray Public is provided by Basin Electric Power Cooperative, headquartered in Bismarck, a touchstone energy cooperative, producing reliable electricity for 141 member rural electric systems in nine states. This is Dakota Datebook for February 12th. On this evening in 1925, the Men's Conference at the University of North Dakota held a long, stormy session. The topic was cigarette smoking. 
Despite UND's official ban on smoking, there had been a laissez-faire attitude toward enforcement. Captain Lawrence Quinn, an infantry officer on the faculty of the Reserve Officer Training Corps at UND, chaired UND's Student Affairs Committee. Captain Quinn regarded any unenforced rule to be unacceptable. So, two months earlier, he had issued an ultimatum, either permit smoking or enforce the ban. Captain Quinn's ultimatum plunged UND into turmoil. According to the Dakota student, cigarette smoking was cussed and discussed over the past two months in every university organization, the classrooms, the corridors, and wherever the students congregated. Some students wanted to permit smoking, arguing that the rule was unenforceable. On the other hand, the Dakota student newspaper worried that smoking would be certain to grow by leaps and bounds should the rule be abolished. According to the Dakota student, extremists, liberals, and conservatives waged verbal warfare as to what actions should be taken on the issue of cigarette smoking on the campus. Some students proposed a compromise, setting aside some areas for smoking. Yet according to the Dakota student, state law already banned smoking in any area of university buildings. The men's conference eventually complied with Captain Quinn's demand by choosing to enforce the ban. Quinn expressed satisfaction, saying they laid aside their personal desires and prejudices and have looked to the welfare of our university. Although Captain Quinn may have gotten his way this evening in 1925, a spirit of student rebellion embraced cigarette smoking as a way to thumb one's nose against campus authority. The 1926 Dakota Yearbook shows university mascot Hi Haya dressed in a classic college outfit holding a lit cigarette. Meanwhile, the ceramics department of the UND School of Mines would become renowned for making decorative and highly collectible ashtrays. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Andrew Alexis Varvel. I'm Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota. And that's a wrap for today's Main Street. On All Things Considered, the price of cocoa, it's reached a 47-year-old record. And what does that mean for consumers? And later, the hidden brain. What is the key to more productive disagreements? And coming up tomorrow on the show, what's the difference between a day set aside for forced romance or a day set aside to honor romance? Two ways to look at Valentine's Day. That's tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.